First Corinthians chapter 13. And let's read from the first verse of uh, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, a man, like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This is a chapter, of course, which has uh, romantic associations. If you go to a wedding, it's possible that a verse from this chapter was inscribed on the invitation. Maybe sitting in the service, as you uh, look at the order of service, you will, the wedding service, you will find a verse, a phrase, um, a sentence from this chapter somewhere on that order of service. It is a chapter that has romantic associations. It's uh, almost inevitable that it will be read at most marriage uh, services and ceremonies. None of that is wrong, nor is it unexpected. This is, after all, the great love chapter of the New Testament. But there is a danger that we can divorce it from the context within which it is set and the context within which it makes the most sense. Because rather than being this romantic, cozy chapter that we can kind of cuddle up to and which will make us feel all warm on the inside, it is instead a stick of dynamite uh, right at the very heart of this church and the problems that it is facing, this chapter. We've already discovered that uh, the church at Corinth had been plagued with difficulties there, were, there was the fragmentation of its members, different groups within the church lining up behind high-profile personalities, and uh, they liked the way that that particular individual served up Christianity, and they felt that they were part of his club, and they weren't part of the other clubs that existed in the church. Alongside the fragmentation of its uh, members, into different groups. There were individuals within the church, and some of these high-profile individuals may have been guilty of this. 
cherishing inflated ideas of their own importance. They were in love with themselves, thought they were the church, thought the church evolved around them, and thought that they were quite fabulous. There were all kinds of insensitivities going on in the church at Corinth. Uh, People were taking offense. Stumbling blocks were being put in in weaker Christians' way. Uh, Rich were taking the poor to court just to get their last pound of flesh, even though the poor couldn't defend themselves in the legal system. There was a striving to outdo each other in the context of public worship services as those who felt they were gifted in the more spectacular gifts or with the more spectacular gifts were trying to outdo others and outdo each other. And there were all kinds of struggles uh, going on, interpersonal struggles going on in this church at Corinth. So to address these difficulties, Paul outlines the Christian's responsibility in this chapter to live together in love and in harmony. He wants them to see the importance of love. He wants them to understand what love looks like. And he wants them to understand that love is actually superior to any of the other things that they covet and and cherish and, and strive for. He wants them to understand that they have undervalued Christian love. And it's time to bring it back up in terms of their list of priorities. Christian love is much more important, I think, than many of us have imagined. It was Jesus who said on one occasion that the primary distinguishing characteristic of his disciples is that they will love one another. By this shall men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. That is the primary distinguishing characteristic of a disciple. As the watching skeptical world looks into the church the thing that they will be struck by is the fact that these people love each other, care deeply about each other, and show it and demonstrate it. Why is it that they show this love? Could it be that there is a God who has been loving and gracious and good to them, and they therefore want to reflect that in the way that they treat each other? Yet despite the clarity of this statement, which had undoubtedly been relayed to the Corinthians, either through Paul and his teaching or Peter, who at some point must have shown up in Corinth. These Christians did not love each other. At least if they did, they had the weirdest way ever of showing it. Now, I want to draw your attention to this chapter because as I go on in life, um, I realize the importance of Christian love within the context of our homes. How many homes have been destroyed and are a living nightmare because of the absence of Christian love. How many families, extended families, brothers and sisters, now married, living separate lives, but just that, living separate lives, never talk to each other, don't like each other, something said, something done, and the whole, the the wheels have come off, and the relationship's broken, and there's no love, there's an absence of love in, in terms of our extended families. And finally, I think that love is incredibly important in the context of the church. I've been around church for a long time now, been a minister for nearly 20 years. So I've seen a lot of church, and what I think about church is that there is an absence of love in the Christian church in many ways and in many places. And I think many of the struggles that, that we face in the context of church would dissipate, disappear overnight if only we reintroduced the love that Jesus spoke about 
um, and, and described as, as a primary mark of his, of his disciples. I want to give you a quick assessment, quick overview rather, of the first three verses. I don't want to focus really on them, but I, want, I think it helps to set this thing in context, this chapter in context, just by reminding ourselves of what Paul is trying to communicate in the first three verses. And what he is trying to communicate in the first three verses is that love is really important, much more important than you Christians in Corinth have, uh, have understood it to be. And you need to understand that without it, you are nothing. That's what he's trying to communicate in the first three verses. Verse 1, without love I produce nothing. So I might be uh, incredibly fluent as far as language goes. I might be able to speak all the languages spoken by the people groups across the face of the earth. Chinese, um, English, Spanish, Italian, and so on. But I might even be able to speak the language which is spoken by angels in heaven. And it's possible that he's just using hyperbole there. If indeed there is such a thing as a language spoken by angels. I may be the most fluent, gifted person as far as language speaking is concerned in the world. You've got to understand that Corinth is at the crossroads of the ancient world. People coming east and west, north and south. People speaking all kinds of different languages rolling into Corinth. So language is significant. Significant on Sunday at the services, language was significant. But the point which Paul is making here is that I might be incredibly gifted in relation to that, but if I don't have love, then I produce nothing. You, you may as well listen to somebody bang a cymbal for 30 minutes as listen to me, even though I'm eloquent beyond measure if I don't have love. So the striking challenge of this is a minister may be an incredibly gifted preacher, but if he doesn't love God and love people, then you might as well bang a cymbal for 30 minutes as listen to him. That's the stark reality of what Paul is saying. In verse 2, he says, without love, I am nothing. I may have the gift of declaring the Word of God. I may have the most amazing understanding of the Word of God. I may have enough faith to move mountains from one location to another. But if I don't have love, I am nothing. I am zero. So you can have as many zeros as you like. A, a, a list, a line as long as you can write of zeros, but it's still zero. And Paul is saying, you are zero. You are nothing unless... What you do and who you are is couched and framed and set in the context of Christian love. And then in verse 3, he says, without love, I gain nothing. Some of these people were doing wonderful Christian acts. Wouldn't giving all your goods to the poor impress God? Wouldn't God be impressed with that? Wouldn't that chalk up some points with God? Wouldn't dying the death of a martyr wager well with God? Wouldn't he be impressed with that if I gave my body to be burned for some Christian truth. And, and Paul writes back and says, well, not really. Not unless it was motivated by love for God and love for your neighbor, love for people. So in the first three verses, Paul has really been highlighting the fact that love is important. Without it, without it we produce nothing, we are nothing, and we accomplish or we gain nothing. So at the end of verse 3, we're left asking our que the question, because we, we've been convinced that love is important, we're left asking the question, so then what is love? What does love look like? How do I know if I am a loving person? Is love a gushy feeling that I have in my stomach when I meet my uh, future wife? What, what is love? How, what does it look like? And so 
uh, Paul wants them to know that it's a very practical, down-to-earth thing. And uh, he goes on to explain it here in great detail from verses 4 through verse 8a. He gives us his uh, working definition description of love. If you think of love as a diamond, then here are the 15 facets of this diamond called love. Now, there are several ways in which we could read this chapter. You could read this chapter, uh, love is kind, or love is patient, love is kind, and so on. But you could actually read it by putting it, the name Jesus in there. Jesus was kind, wasn't he? And, and Jesus was patient, and Jesus was not proud and did not boast, and Jesus was not, uh, he, he was not easily provoked, and Jesus was not rude, and he, he kept no record of wrongs. He didn't hold on to things forever. You could read Jesus, in, but could you ever read your own name into this chapter? Could I read my name into this chapter? Robert is patient. Robert is kind. That's the challenge that faces us as we read this chapter. The other thing which is worth just flagging up, and that is that all of the verbs here are in the present continuous tense. That means it's not something that I am to be today and tomorrow I can take a break because I did such a great job today. Present continuous. I am to be all of these things all of the time. I am to be patient. I am to be kind. Um, I am not to be proud. I, I am not to be a, somebody who brags and boasts. I'm not to be envious. I'm not to be rude. All of the time I am to be all of these things. These are the marks of a disciple of Jesus. This is what it means to love other disciples. To show this kind of behavior and to interact uh, your interaction to be marked with these qualities. So, the first thing, I don't really have uh, any great structure um, other, other than, uh, because I think this, the passage is a structure. The points are as they come to us from the text. And he just gives us this long list of uh, 15 points that he wants us to see. So, the first thing is love is patient. Love is patient. Or in the words of the authorized version, love suffereth long and I like that. It has a ring to it. Suffereth long. I think it captures what what Paul is trying to communicate here. Love suffereth long. Macrothumio. It's a, a word which is used for being patient with people. Being patient with other people. A little later he talks about love is not easily provoked. That's about just anger. Being an angry person. But here it seems to be focused primarily on being patient with people. Being patient with people. Love puts up with people for a long time before it begins to fume and burst into flames. Love has got a long rather than a short fuse. Some of us are a bit like the fireworks that uh, kids have been letting off for the last month. And uh, the little string, that the little piece of paper that comes with, with it says, light the touch paper and then stand so many meters back as quickly as you can, because that thing's going to explode all over the place. Some of us are a bit like fireworks. If somebody touches our, lights our touch paper, we're likely to explode all over the place, and sometimes in their face. So we may be great speakers, we may give a lot to church funds, we may be gifted in a thousand different ways, but the truth is, we are not patient. And Paul wants these Christians in Corinth to know that this is not on. The love which marks a disciple of Jesus puts up with others for a long time. Now, the word itself says Chrysostom. 
is a word which speaks of a man or woman who has been wronged, who has the opportunity to avenge themselves, but who chooses not to. I wonder if you've ever been wronged, and have you ever had the chance to get even? Say something about uh, someone that has wronged you to others, that will help cut them down to size, that will help other people to see them in exactly the same way that you see them. Love does not operate like that. It it has a long rather than a short fuse. Now, lest you think that the Corinthians were sitting here with their Greek philosophical minds 50 miles west of Athens, just lapping this up, saying this is fantastic (coughs) teaching. I wish that we we could get this all the time. I want you to know that this went against everything that they'd been taught from infancy upwards. Aristotle taught that the great Greek virtue was the refusal to tolerate insult or injury. Instead, it was taught that a sign of greatness was that you should strike back immediately for the slightest offense. That's what Greek culture um, taught these, these Corinthians from their infancy upwards. And Paul writes them and says, well, I don't really care much about your culture. And I don't really care much about what you've been taught from your infancy up. This may be counterculture or countercultural, but what I want you to know is that the love which marks a disciple of Jesus is patient. It puts up with people for a long, long time. Love acts as Jesus acted. How did Jesus act? When he was reviled, he reviled not in return, we're told, but committed his cause to him who judges justly. Jesus could have destroyed those who mocked him on the cross, but instead he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And to one of them who had spent the morning mocking him, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Love puts up with people for a long time. Before Abraham Lincoln became the 16th president of the United States, he had a political enemy called Edwin Stanton. Stanton uh, didn't like Lincoln at all. Uh, He referred to him in public as a low, cunning clown. And uh, on another occasion, he referred to him as the original gorilla. In fact, he was so vitriolic in in his comments about Lincoln that he wrote to a gentleman in Springfield who was sending to Africa to buy a gorilla and bring it back to the States as a kind of a pet. He wrote to him and says, don't bother sending to Africa. You could get a gorilla right here in Springfield in the form of Lincoln. When Lincoln became president and was in office for a year, he had to replace his war secretary. Who do you think he replaced his war secretary with? Edwin Stanton, a political opponent. When asked why, he said, because he is the best man for the job, and I will treat him with every courtesy. And so he did. And when Lincoln was eventually assassinated and laid out to rest, One of the first people to come and visit the lifeless body of the president was Stanton and stood over the president with tears running down his face. And he said, here lies the greatest leader of men this world has ever known. You see, Lincoln's patience overcame Stanton's hostility. Lincoln's patience overcame Stanton's hostility. Love is patient because God is patient and God is love. 
Think about how patient God has been with you. I am overwhelmed with God's patience for me. God has been so patient with me. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable how patient God has been with me. God is patient. I heard about Robert Ingersoll, the 19th century atheist. He used to stop in his lectures and say to his students, I'll give God, it was either five minutes or three minutes to strike me down dead if he exists. At the end of the three minutes, he would stop and he would say to his students, I told you, there's no God. Three minutes, I'm still here. And, and in blasphemous bravado, he would denounce and decry the thought that God existed. And a minister called Theodore Parker heard about Ingersoll's claims and responded by saying, did the gentleman really think that he would exhaust the patience of an eternal God in three minutes? God is patient. And he wants his people to be patient. God has been patient with us. And he wants us to be patient with others. Love is patient. Secondly, love is kind. If patience will take almost anything from anyone, kindness will give anything to anyone. To be kind is to be useful, serving. It's to be gracious. Kindness is to be active, uh, towards in, in, in goodwill towards others. It not only feels generous, but it is generous. It desires other people's welfare and works towards it. I think many things will be forgotten, but I don't think kindness will be easily forgotten. People may forget how intelligent you were. People will forget how humorous or, or how funny you were. But I don't think that they will forget your kindness easily. The people that live longest, have lived longest in my mind, are the people who have been kind to me. When I was a, a, a young teenager, my father was ill, picked up pneumonia, pleurisy, and a bunch of other things, and, and, and was really ill for several months in hospital. And at one point, it was, it was pretty critical, and we thought that he was going to die, and he survived. But it, at the time, it was difficult. And so the hospital was 50, 60 miles away from where we lived, and my mother would drive there every day, every morning, come back of, in, in the evening. I can still remember the ladies that came to our house with meals that we uh, heated up in the oven, not the microwave, because there were no microwaves. It's hard to believe that. But in the oven. I, I can still remember the ladies that came um, and, and took away our dirty washing, washed it, dried it, ironed it, folded it, brought it back in a basket. I've been uh, to several Bible colleges, and I forget half the names of the people that I studied with, brilliant theologically, but I, I'll never forget those ladies, ever. When you come and visit me when I'm 100 in a nursing home somewhere, I'll, you, you ask me about those ladies, I'll, I'll still be able to tell you their names. Because the memory of their kindness lives long in, in my mind, how kind are you? Would anyone, anyone ever say of you, this is a kind person? Do you look out for the needs of the people around you? Do we support those in our fellowship who need our kindness? This is striking a blow at the heart of Corinthian relationships because they weren't kind. They were anything. They were unkind towards each other. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. Their services were amazing. 
They had some of the best preachers in the first century. Apollos was one of the preachers in the church at Corinth. They had people who were gifted with spectacular gifts at play in the church at Corinth. But Paul is writing to them and saying, what good is all of that if people have no record of you as would relate to kindness? What does it matter if you get straight A's in your hires? What does it matter if you are the best businessman in Edinburgh? If your family and those who know you would never use the word kindness to describe you and all that you've left behind you is a trail of badness and bitterness and jealousy. Despite how clearly this is stated, it seems to me that God's people are not kind to each other. The things that we say to each other are not kind. They are unkind. In fact, they are cruel. I've lost count of the number of people who have come to my office, particularly when I was a minister, but not just when I was a minister, in more recent times, with tears running down their faces. And when you begin to ask them what is wrong, they were wounded by their friends, wounded by the unkind words of their friends. And it all seemed a joke at the time, and it was funny at the time. But when they went home and thought about the conversation and the things that were said about them or to them, it hurt them deeply. They used to say, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That's a lie from hell. Names do hurt people. And they carry the scars of those wounds for a long, long time. And sometimes as Christians, we need to stop and ask ourselves, is what I am saying about this person or to this person, is it kind? I walked out of church one Sunday morning, not this church, another church far away from here, and I listened to a teenager as I walked across the the church car park bawling at her mother, and I mean bawling at her mother, and I walked past and didn't say anything, just walked to my car and sat in my car for a minute or two and just thought about what I had just witnessed. And I asked myself this question, I wonder where she learned to talk to her mother like that. And I fear maybe, just maybe, it was from her father. We are not kind to each other, but the love which marks a disciple of Jesus is kind. It's kind to people. Thirdly, love does not envy Two kinds of envy. There is an envy that wants what other people have. So I drive my little beaten up Mini. I see someone driving a nice car. They pull up at the lights beside me. And all of a sudden I want that car. And my Mini could just go to to the junkyard right away. I should have that car. That's envy. I don't need that car. My little Mini gets me from A to B. And it's just fine. But there's a different kind of envy, and I think this is the envy that was at play in Corinth. There's an envy that doesn't want what other people have as much as, I don't want them to have something I don't have. So there's a great illustration of this in the Old Testament. Two ladies have have a baby. One of the babies dies. And the other lady, the baby who's the lady whose baby died decides that she's going to steal the other lady's baby and then there's a war on. It's my baby. No, it's my baby. So they bring it to Solomon. Solomon says, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll cut the baby in two. You can have half and you can have half. Wouldn't that be a great solution? Now, the lady who doesn't want the baby, she doesn't want the baby. She just doesn't want someone else having what she doesn't have. have. She says, that's a great idea. Just go ahead, cut the baby in two, half to to you and half to you. But the lady who wants the baby, who loves the baby, 
says, no, no, don't do that. You see how envy is so destructive? She didn't want the baby. She just didn't want someone else having something she didn't. And that was what was at play in Corinth. It's not that they wanted those gifts. It's not that they wanted the things that other people have. They just didn't like the fact that someone else had that. And someone else had that gift. And someone else had those possessions. And someone else had that personality. And they, they weren't content with the fact that God had made them who he had made them. And God had given them what he had given them. And they weren't content to be themselves. They were envious of others. Wanting to be something that they were not. Why won't we be content to be ourselves for God? Why are we always trying to fit into someone else's armor? I love that story of David and, and, and Saul tries to dress him in his armor. You remember that story? And, and David says, I'm not wearing this. I'm just a shepherd boy. I can't wear this armor. Because he just wants to be himself for God. And the Corinthians have never grasped that. Why can't we just be ourselves for God? We are not in a competition. We are trying to complement each other. And so love acts as Jonathan acted in the Old Testament when he discovered that God had chosen David to be the next king of Israel. Remember that story? What did Jonathan do? He's the son of the king, Jonathan. He's the crown prince. He'll be the next king. But he discovers that God has bypassed him and chosen his friend to be king. You know what he does? He takes off his princely garments, his belt, and I think his sword, and gives them to David. He loves his friend David and he rejoices with his friend David and he's not in any way envious of David. I think that's an incredible story. Love does not envy. It's not jealous. Fourthly, love does not boast. It vaunteth not itself, it says, I think, in the authorized version. It doesn't parade itself. A loving person who is successful doesn't seek a platform upon which to parade its own accomplishments. It doesn't brag. It doesn't want everybody to think it's fabulous. Love does not brag. Yet within the church at Corinth, there were a number of show-offs going around. In chapter 4, verse 7 of uh, this letter to the Corinthians, Paul had to ask them, who made you different from anyone else? And what do you have that you did not receive? And that's a great question for us when we start to imagine that we are fantastic. It's a great question for us to ask ourselves, who, what do we have that we didn't receive? Like, why would a preacher ever become proud of his gift of preaching? Then the truth is, God could silence me before I leave this lectern, and I would never speak again, ever. What do any of us have that we did not receive from God? Nothing. And God could take it all away in a flash. We are given gifts to use for a little while, and then we'll leave them behind and go to heaven. Everything that we have has been given to us by God, and He could take it away in a flash. And, of course, a great illustration of that is Nebuchadnezzar. He's standing on his balcony. He thinks he's built this fantastic kingdom. He congratulates himself. But the next day, God takes it all away from him as he takes leave of his senses and his sound mind, and he goes out to graze in the field with other animals. God can take what we have away in a flash. Why would we ever be proud? Being proud is, and, and, and being a, a, a boasting is so foolish when you think about it. I heard the story about a young preacher who was sitting in church. And who slipped into the church in front of him? Only D.L. Moody, the great evangelist. Couldn't believe it. 
so excited. Moody was in front of him. He couldn't wait for the service to be over. And when the service was over, he, he shook Moody's hand and he said to D.L. Moody, would you pray for me, Mr. Moody? And uh, Mr. Moody looked at him and said, well, what do you want me to pray about, son? And uh, this young preacher, still green behind the ears, uh, like myself, said, would you pray that God would keep me humble? And Moody looked at him and said, and what would you have to be proud about? What would you have to be proud of? What would any of us have to be proud about? Why in the world would we boast? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Love is not proud. It does not boast, and it is not proud. He says, Philip's paraphrase of this is that love does not cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Love does not cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. There were people in this church who thought more highly of themselves than they should. That was part of the difficulty in this church. They could have written the book Humility and How I Attained It. I am not conceited, but I have every right to be so. A bit like Oscar Wilde clearing customs and asked, Have you anything to declare? Nothing but my genius. But in complete contrast to that, you see that humility is one of the marks of God's people, isn't it? Hasn't it always been one of the marks of God's people? A group went down to the wilderness to talk to John the Baptist and said, Are you the one? Oh, no, I'm not the one. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal strap, unlatch the sandal straps of the person who is the one. I heard about William Carey translated the Bible into 34 Indian dialects. Asked at a, at a tea event uh, with the East Indian Company, a lady didn't like Carey, despised him in fact, stood up in public and in front of everybody tried to belittle him and said, so Carey, I hear back in England you were a shoemaker. Oh no, he says, not a shoemaker. I was just a shoe mender in England. She put him down, but he put himself even lower. Because the love which marks a disciple of Jesus is not proud. It's marked by humility. Humility. Love knows why it has what it has. And it gives all the glory to God. Love is not rude. Love doesn't behave indecently or in a shameful manner. Love has good manners. Love does not embrace what is dishonorable or disgraceful. There's a graciousness about Christian love that never forgets that courtesy, tact, and politeness are lovely things. Bishop Lightfoot said of one of his students, let him go where he pleases. His face will be a sermon in itself. Rudeness had become the trademark of the church at Corinth, not least at the love feasts, as the rich just started without the poor and they ate themselves full like gluttons and drunk far more, drank far more than they ever should have. It rudeness, just rudeness. They didn't care about what the poor thought, what the weak Christians thought. Rudeness was the mark of the church of many uh, in the church at Corinth. Some Christians today are, could never witness to their neighbors or their work colleagues because of the rude behavior that has gone before. They could never witness to their non-Christian work colleagues because of the way that they've behaved, rudeness. Love is not rude. Love is a nice person to know. 
Stuart Blackie, professor here at Edinburgh University, teaching a group of students oral recitations, told them, take the book in your right hand, in, in, back in the days when they taught oratory skills, and, and take the book in your right hand and project your voice from your diaphragm, so on, not from the, your nose. And, and uh, so the students, one by one, were practicing in front of Blackie, take the book, the right hand, uttering whatever was in the book. One of the students took the book in his left hand, Professor Stuart Blackie here at Edinburgh University thundered down the class, I told you, take the book in your right hand. Student held up his right arm and it ended at his wrist. Everybody's shifting in their seats uncomfortably in the class. What's going to happen now, Christians? Professor Stuart Blackie, what are you going to do now? He went straight down to the student, put his arm around him, and deeply, sincerely apologized. I'm so sorry. I had no idea. Please forgive me. That story was being told in Charlotte Chapel some uh, years later. And at the end, as a sermon illustration, at the end of the sermon, a young boy jumped up at the front of the church and held up his right arm and it ended at his wrist. And the young boy said, I was that student. And Stuart Blackie led me to faith in Christ. But he could never have done it if he had not put the wrong right. Love is not rude. Love is a nice person to know. Love is not self-seeking. Love doesn't insist that all of the privileges are mine and all of the responsibilities are others. Love cares about more than itself. Yet not many in the church at Corinth cared about very many others other than themselves. As the watching world looked into this church, they saw that selfishness was reigning supremely. There's a human tendency to get caught up with yourself, isn't there? There's a little, there's a little tombstone in a church in England, and this is what it says. Here lies a miser who lived for himself. He cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is and how he fares, nobody knows, and nobody really cares. In Scotland, there is another tombstone, and it says, interred beneath this kirkyard stain lies stingy Jimmy Wyatt, who died in morning just at 10 and saved a dinner by it. In complete contrast to that, there is a stone with these words etched on them in St. Paul's in London, to the memory of Sir Charles George Gordon, who at all times and everywhere gave his strength to the weak, his substance to the poor, his sympathy to the suffering, and his heart to God. What a great epitaph. His heart to God. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily provoked. There's an obvious connection with love as patient, but here it's talking about being an angry person. There is such a thing as being as righteous anger. We see that in Jesus. He was angry when he, when, when he saw what they had done to his father's house, turned it into a den of thieves and robbers. But how often is our anger righteous indignation? For the most part, our, our ego has been wounded. Our program has been upset. Someone has come between us and our idol, to quote Tim Heller. Tim Keller. And the truth is, we are irritable, cantankerous rascals that are as unchristlike as they come. We are easily provoked, angry people. You drive 
through Edinburgh or Glasgow. I was doing this recently, got into the wrong lane, tried to get into the right lane. Oh, there's angry people around. They were, there was people making signs at me that I didn't even know were signs. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards, the great colonial preacher, was uh, being asked by a young man for the hand of his daughter in marriage, and he said to the young man, you can't have her. She's got a bad temper. The young man says, well, she's a Christian, isn't she? Yes, says Edward, she is a Christian. So why can't I have her as my wife? Because the grace of God can live with people that you would never be able to live with. Love is not easily provoked. We ought not to be irritable and cantankerous. Lastly, and with this I'm finished, love keeps no record of wrongs. Logizomite's a bookkeeping term. It speaks about keeping a record of the wrongs that you have suffered. Some people are experts at this. They go through life with a permanent chip on their shoulder. And when you talk to them, it all comes pouring out. Go on a car journey with them and you'll hear about all of the hurts that they've ever suffered over the course of their life. And there's never been any forgiveness. There's never been any dealing with these issues. And they've pent up and they become huge, huge they become insurmountable mountains. They, they just become monstrous because nothing is ever dealt with. And it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. But love keeps no record of wrongs. Love acts like the father in the story of the prodigal son. Remember that story? It's a great story. And he, he sees his son coming in a distance. Why? Because he's looking for his son, waiting for his son, longing for his son. Can you see his older son coming to him? Say, you've gone out to look for that rascal again today? This is the 360th day that you've gone out looking for him. When are you going to forget him? Don't you know the kind of lifestyle he's been living? Don't you know that he has squandered your, your wealth? And the father says, no, I'll go out another 360 days and I'll wait for him and I'll long for him and I'll look for him because love keeps no record of wrongs. Look at what the father does when he returns. Before he even has a chance to blurt out, Father, I'm sorry, he gives him new robes and new sandals and new rings. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And maybe some of us need to deal with some of our hurts so that we can move on in our Christian lives because bitterness is eating away at our hearts. In the final section of this chapter, Paul really is trying to emphasize the superiority of love. They've, they've become focused on, on uh, the more spectacular gifts like prophecy and tongues. And Paul says, listen, love is the thing that's eternal. I mean, love is even greater than faith and hope. We get to heaven, our hopes will be realized. We won't be hoping for heaven. We won't be hoping to see God. We will be in the presence of God. We won't need faith in Christ. We will be with Christ. Faith and hope remain now, but love is greater than even these two because love will endure for all eternity. As Jonathan Edwards says, heaven is a world of love. Love is the greatest. You know that if you're a parent, don't you? Don't you know that if you're a parent? I mean, your kids have got all kinds of certificates for playing the violin, for getting the Ducks Award at school. But what are the things that mean the most to you as a parent? I guarantee you it's the little notes that you have that say, you're the best dad in the world. You're the best mum in the world. I love you, mum. And why do those things mean more to you than the certificates that are plastered around the walls? Because the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. We used to sing that little song, didn't we? Love is a flag flying high from the castle of my heart. And what does it tell the world? 
It tells the world that the king is in residence here. Let's fly the flag and tell the world Jesus lives here.